And welcome to another episode of Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today, you can't see me, but I'm actually rocking my South Carolina State sweatshirt. Shout out to the Celebration Bowl that's happening in Atlanta, Georgia, between Florida a University and Howard University. Howard University Bison had to think about that. So shout out to everybody in the A who is participating in that. Today, we actually have a show with somebody who is utterly brilliant, but Adia Wingfield is joining the show today. How are you doing today? I'm fine. Thanks so much for having me. Where are you, by the way? I'm in, I, the, I'm, the windows are throwing me off there. <laughs> I'm in St. Louis. We have nice weather here today. Oh, yeah. Well, it is. It's in between. I'm in South Carolina today. It's in between uh, like 30 in the morning and 75 in the afternoon. Yeah, sounds right. My mom calls it get sick weather. Yeah. So <laughs> uh, my show is unique because we start each one of our shows with the same question and we have our guests walk us through the arc of their career. So you've had a storied career in sociology and the academy, including the work you're doing now at Washington University in St. Louis. Walk us through the arc of your career and tell us about why you chose a career in academia in the field of sociology. Oh, that's an interesting question. Uh, I was interested in higher education from an early age. My father is retired now, but he was a college professor. And so I kind of grew up on college campuses and just always was in love with this idea of thinking about ideas and research and concepts and teaching and things like that. Sociology struck me as a great path. I found that actually in high school. I took an 11th grade uh, sociology class with Mrs. Sandra Ellington, and she doesn't know it, but she changed my life completely because it just opened my eyes up to this field and this way of thinking about about group dynamics and studying people in the aggregate and trying to understand how different social institutions have an impact on group outcomes. So uh, it, pretty much from that point on, it's been really focused on this, this area and focused on topics in sociology um, up to today. Well, shout out to that, those teachers. Every, every teacher, we always can go back and find that one teacher that had that impact on our lives. So maybe you should, we're we going to reach out to her, make sure. <laughs> so your, your research focuses on how and why racial and gender inequality persist in professional occupations. Yes. That's, a, that's I, mean, that's a, I mean, that's a lifetime of research to do. Over yeah. there. <laughs> how did you come upon this particular area of research? Talk about it for those of us who may not understand or know why racial and gender inequality persist in professional occupations. Yeah, that was an interest that I think got really clarified in graduate school. I went into sociology always wanting to study uh, racial inequality and trying to make sense of why I saw so much of it growing up and why it seemed so present and uh, really ubiquitous in so many different spaces. But I took another class when I was in graduate school that focused on women in the workplace. And it really made me start thinking about how socialization processes and gender segregation are so pronounced to where even when we as individuals may have goals that lead us in certain paths, institutional structures often channel us into certain jobs, into certain workplaces. For women, you find us in more uh, female-dominated jobs that tend to focus more on caring and emotional expression and things like that. For men, it's the opposite. You tend to find men in jobs that uh, are not focused in those areas, but also tend to be more highly paying. And so I was really interested in how both those things came together and what that meant for Black workers in professional jobs who are in occupations where they are often underrepresented, but also are navigating racialized expectations and institutional structures that try to push them into lower wage jobs or lower status jobs and what those struggles and experiences look like. Let me ask you a question. It's a, this is just a question to kind of lay the groundwork for this discussion we're going to have today. but you know, you see those little memes sometimes. And I think people confuse inequity and inequality. Can you give us a more advanced understanding of what the difference between those words are? 
Yeah, I mean, to me, what I think that comes back to is whether we were talking about uh, opportunities or outcomes, right? And if we were talking about uh, opportunities, then we were talking about whether or not we have institutional structures that allow everyone to have access to the same outcomes, right? If we were talking about outcomes, that's a bit of a different uh, question, but it's related to the institutional structures that may make it easier or harder for various groups to have access to mentors, to training, to educational opportunities and things like that. See, I hope y'all rewound that and listen to that in your classes. Uh, <laughs> so let's talk about your book, Gray yes. Areas. Uh, so I know how difficult it is to write a book. I just finished that. Shout out. We just unveiled the moment today. But Gray Areas, how the way we work perpetuates racism and what we can do to fix it. Uh, first, how did this book come about and what was happening in your scholarship such that you felt this book at this time was needed? Yeah, those are great questions. I think the book came about as a culmination of things that I've been wrestling with over the course of my career. Specifically, I really was interested in what seemed to be two paradoxical and apparently contradictory uh, dynamics. One is that we're over 50 years from the signing of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. We're at a place in our society where we have a billion dollar diversity industry. It's thriving. It's present. It's part of so many companies. But at the same time, we also have workplaces that are really profoundly unequal if you look at the numbers. We know, for example, that racial wage disparities persist for Black workers and white workers in particular, that Black workers face substantial hiring discrimination and even getting access to jobs, and that they are significantly underrepresented at the top ranks of leadership in virtually every industry. And it seems like both of those things shouldn't be true. We shouldn't have this legal progress towards civil rights in this diversity industry, but still see so much racial inequality in workplaces. So gray areas was my attempt to try to answer that question. And a lot of what I suggest in the book is that the reason reason why we see this perpetuated is through what I refer to as the gray areas of work, the social parts, the cultural parts, the relational parts that are a bit more ambiguous and less regulated and therefore are where we can see racial inequality perpetuating. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Pondering the Bagel with Tom. Oh, the paradox of the bagel. Tis crunchy yet soft. Tis filling yet has a hole. Tis a vehicle for spreads, but only travels from toaster to plate. Thomas's. Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. So let me just dig in deep and I'm going to sound smart, but you, this question may not make sense to you. So <laughs> how you wish. So when I think about the workplace, I think of four distinct areas, getting a job, workplace norms, or how we act at work, advancement, or how we move ahead and mobility, mm -hmm. how we move up in our profession and across new opportunities. How does race and racism um, at each of these steps in the career path affect people of color, particularly black folks? 
Yes, that's a great question. So I will start with this question of hiring, which is one of the areas that I talk about a lot in the book. I think that we may have this premise that, you know, people send in applications for jobs, the best person qualified gets hired and gets the job and we go from there. But the data and the research show that that's, again, not really accurate. For one thing, in our advanced technological society, a lot of the ways that hiring managers make sense of the applications that they get is through either narratives or through referrals and recommendations from people. But we also know that our our existing social circles are likely to be pretty racially homogenous. Black people are less likely to be part of predominantly white friend groups. Data from the Public Research Religion Institute shows that as of 2014, about 75% of white workers had no people of color at all in their friend, work, friend networks. So when companies are relying on these relationships to get people in the door, black workers are already starting at a disadvantage, even if people are particularly well-meaning or not necessarily intending to discriminate. We also know when it comes to advancement that it's a similar process. The idea is that the best person for the job is going to advance to the higher ranking role, the person who makes the most money for the company or does the best work or what have you. But again, the data suggests that the processes by which people learn about advancement are often very opaque. They're usually not transparent. Uh, they also are very heavily driven by access to mentors and sponsors and people who have the relationships to move people into higher status jobs. We also know that Black workers report the most distance from people who are in supervisory roles and people who are in managerial positions. So again, these inadvertent processes make it a lot easier for Black workers to be disadvantaged through these processes, even if people are not necessarily intentionally engaging in a discriminatory fashion. Where do you expect to see your book? I mean, is this a book of scholarship in academia where you expect to see it on shelves in the University of South Carolina library taught in sociology classes or and or is this a book that you expect to see? Uh, traversing its way through Fortune 500 companies and CEOs, or is this something that you just read when you're in the airport and you want to get through your flight? My hope is that all of those uh, outcomes <laughs> are, are what happens, right? I mean, so it, it's not a book written exclusively for academic audiences. It's very much written for lay readers. It's very much written for people, for actually multiple audiences, for people who are in workplaces and they want to know more and think more about kind of why we do see racial inequality at work. This is a book for those audiences, for people who are in leadership roles and companies and want to have a better understanding of what's going on in their workplaces and how they may inadvertently be doing some things that could be stymieing Black workers. This is a book for them, but also for Black employees. This is a book so that I hope Black workers can pick this up and think to themselves, okay, this wasn't all in my head. All these experiences that I've been having, these weren't things that I was being too sensitive about. These weren't things that I was making up. These are not only real and documented, these are systemic issues that are really very ever-present for a lot of Black workers. All right, let me dig into something a little deeper here. Okay. I, I know this may get me in trouble, but I know that, <laughs> but I'm going to ask it. Do we, do we see distinct patterns in your research between how Black men and Black women fare? For example, do we see black women catching twice as much hell when you factor in sexism, sexism too? Or do we see black men catching it worse now than black women? That is a great question. And one that I've addressed in some of my other projects. I have another book that focuses specifically on black men working in white male dominated workplaces. But in this book, I do talk about both black men and black women to try to elucidate some of what those challenges look like. And what I think is more useful is not to think about it in terms of who's kind of having it worse or who's having the more difficult experience, but to think about how intersections of race and gender are differently impacting both black uh -oh. men and black You said intersectionality. I heard you. Uh -oh. <laughs> I did. I know that's a banned word about, in some your place. Your book's about to get banned. <laughs> oh, <goodness. laughs> I know that's a banned word in some places. <laughs> 
but it's a, it's a really useful concept for what we're talking about here, right? Uh, so for example, in the book, I talk about Constance, who's a Black woman professor in the STEM fields. And those fields tend to be very predominantly white and male. One of the reasons I wanted to include Constance was because her experience really highlights how, as a Black woman specifically, she's very isolated in her department, not just from her white male colleagues, but from her white women colleagues as well. At the same time, I talk about Kevin, who is a nonprofit worker, and he's employed at a nonprofit that is predominantly comprised of white women in the educational field. And he also talks about feeling very alienated and uh, marginalized by many of his white women co-workers because there's a perception that he, as a black man, he's not someone who's best suited for education. He's not someone who really belongs in a leadership role. Both of these workers are experiencing these intersections of race and gender in ways that lead them to different places, but places that still create adverse outcomes for them when it comes to navigating environments with their colleagues, when it comes to advancement, when it comes to forging the ties and the relationships that they need. So I think it's less of a question of uh, kind of who's in what position and thinking about how those positions differ because race and gender matter for all of us. Uh, zooming out a bit, are there any places in the world, and this is a very intriguing question to me, that do a better job in the workplace where people of color actually fare better? Yeah, so I talk about that some in the conclusion too. I try to look at some companies that have implemented some of the suggestions that I talk about with varying degrees of success. So Google is one of the places that I talk about that did try to adopt some programs that focused on hiring. Um, they were, by their own accounts of their, from their own data, a little uneven on the extent to which they implemented those programs, and that did not lead to consistent success across the board. They note that their numbers of Black women uh, particularly did not improve when they did not consistently stick with this program. Uh, Coca-Cola is another company that's well known that I offer as an example of one that implemented certain mentoring programs and saw their numbers of Black workers improve significantly uh, over time. I think by 2016, Coke had perhaps 16 or 17 Black women in vice president positions, which is yeah. I mean, it's <laughs> very Atlanta. typical. Yeah, it's exactly. You exactly. can't have an all-white company in Atlanta. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. So there are some examples of places that I do try to document um, and show how they have implemented some of the solutions that we know work from research. I don't think there are any perfect companies. I think even employees at Google and Coke would suggest that there's still a lot of significant and important work to do. But there is evidence that shows that companies can implement some suggestions to make workplaces better. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions all apply. 
See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com, Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Wasn't the movement towards corporate diversity, equity, and inclusion supposed to fix this, though? Like, I I don't understand why your book is needed. I thought we were, like, in a post-racial America. I thought we had just racial reckoning after George Floyd was murdered, we we fixed this all. So why hasn't it? And what does a good corporate D, E, and I look like given your research? Yeah, that's that's a fun question. I I remember in 2020, I talked with a lot of people in press who would say, you know, what do you think is going to happen now? Companies are talking about these issues. They're blacking out their Instagram squares. They're really doing stuff. And I <laughs> said, well, you know, let's Let's wait and see. Right now, it's too early to draw any uh, any conclusions. So now it's 2023. It's three years later. And I can say that what the data does show us is that a lot of companies have not fulfilled the promises that they made during 2020. A lot of companies have laid off or let go their DEI managers. A lot of companies have not maintained that level of commitment that they had in 2020 when we were fully in the thick of the Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, So, no, I don't think that we fixed any or even close to most of these problems uh, in 2020. What I can say, though, is that there are things that companies can do to try to address the issues that we talk about. And one of those has to do with uh, kind of reversing the trend that I just described about diversity managers, making sure that companies hire and empower diversity managers to make sure that they stay focused on these issues, that they have resources, that they have aligned to leadership that can really help to make sure the companies stay accountable when it comes to these issues. And I talk about some other tips and solutions in the book as well, but it's really important to make sure companies have a point person who is focused on this type of, focused on these outcomes and can really hold leadership's feet to the fire. That's amazing you're saying that as we just saw the University of Oklahoma system eliminate that in their school system just yesterday or day before yesterday. Are there policy solutions that we can look to to based upon your, your research that can address what you found? I think at a policy level, I would encourage policymakers to be more pro-work broadly. Um, And we've seen a lot of reversion from that over the past uh, 50 or 60 years. Uh, Right to work initiatives and minimizing the power of unions has not really been helpful in minimizing racial wage gaps in particular. Mm -hmm. Uh, Legislation that that uh, bans non-compete clauses could go a long way towards making sure that workers, particularly in low income uh, or low wage jobs, are not hamstrung by their inability to find work in other places. We've seen some data even that universal basic income actually serves to address a lot of the problems that are associated with people staying in jobs that are unrewarding, that are uh, not really meeting their their basic needs. So those are a couple of examples of policy solutions that I think make work better broadly for everyone and can have a disproportionate impact on making work better for Black workers in particular. How have corporate leadership types responded to your work? I mean, do people read your book and realize that they're wrong and then hire you to fix their workplace. I mean, how does this get operationalized and what would that look like in a workplace? Yeah, I mean, I think these issues have to start with leadership and leadership commitment. So I will say that thus far, I've had really positive responses from people in corporate uh, settings in response to the book when they've come across the information that I'm describing. Um, But yeah, I, I just I don't see how we make changes on these fronts without people in leadership actively involved and very, very fully committed, right? I mean, it just doesn't work otherwise. Otherwise, you get 
patterns that I've talked about in other research where you have uh, individual black workers hired here and there throughout a company who are doing this work to try to make these changes themselves. And that's not a solution. Individuals do not solve organizational and systemic problems. That is sociology 101, <laughs> right? I mean, you just don't get that outcome unless you're talking about implementing policies and procedural changes that are happening from the leadership level on down. Interesting question here. One of my last kind of critical questions before I ask you the most important question. Uh, does your research show that certain people of color fare better in inequitable workplaces? And if so, why? And what does that tell us about what the response should be? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So the research in sociology shows that different groups of color do have different outcomes. For example, Asian Americans are more likely to be more highly educated than the population at large, and they are more likely to be represented in professional and managerial occupations. But things are not all smooth sailing for them either. They also are less likely to be represented in leadership roles. They are more likely to stall out again at middle management levels. So while they may have more access to education and professional occupations than, say, Black workers, they are also not really seeing kind of unfettered uh, ascension and mobility when we're looking at these workplaces as well. So my book focuses on Black workers, but these are bigger questions about what types of workplaces we want to have and how we want our companies to look. Do we want them to be places that reflect America? And do we want them to be places that reflect our society? Or do we want them to still have a very backward leaning model where they are very steeped in this workplace of the mid 20th century that quite frankly, doesn't really reflect reality anymore? Definitely doesn't affect the America we want. Most right. important question, how can people find, find and buy the book and follow your research? Yes. The, so the book is available anywhere you buy books. I also have a website, adiaharveywingfield.com. You can link to the book there. I'm on uh, Facebook at Adia Wingfield and on the site formerly known as Twitter as uh, Adia H. Wingfield. Or, yes, Adia H. Wingfield. <laughs> yeah, x. x.com. Yes. yes. So Adia Harvey Wingfield, thank you so much for joining Bukari Sellers podcast. This actually was very brilliant. I hope I got smarter. I hope uh, hope the listener <laughs> got smarter as well. Peace and have fun. Happy holidays in the great city of St. Louis. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me.